Hey everybody, welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. My name is Eric Nemchak, his name is Steven Trinkwald, and we are still waiting anxiously for the WNBA free agency period to start, but until then, we decided we'd throw it back and look at another uh, classic WNBA playoff game. Steven, what are we talking about today? Yeah, we do about one or so of these a year. Uh, this time we are talking about Game 3 of the 2015 WNBA Finals. Uh, a pretty famous game, I think, in recent WNBA history between the Minnesota Lynx and the Indiana Fever. Um, a game kind of right in the middle of Minnesota's kind of, uh, I guess, epic dynasty. dynasty. Yeah, the, the, no other way to put it, really. Uh, this is, I think, far and away the most recent game that we've done, but anxious to talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, it's, not, it's always nice finding um, games that are available to watch, and we will not tell you where we found it, but it is out there. Well, so. well this one is actually on League Pass, Eric. Oh, it's on League Pass? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, Le- Le- this is like the first year available on League Pass is 2015. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's cool to have historical stuff on League Pass, and of course, the um, advanced box scores as well uh, back in uh, 2015, but we're still going to do a little bit of table setting for some context uh, beforehand. Yeah, we'll start with the the Minnesota Lynx here. They were the number one seed in the West this year, finishing the regular season at 22-12. They were first in the league in net rating at 5.3, fueled largely by the number two defense in the league. Uh, they had a 94.2 defensive rating. Again, that was good for uh, second. They were fourth in offense at 99.6, and this was a team where the, the second half was uh, much different than the first half due to the trade for Sylvia Falls over the All-Star break from your beloved Chicago Sky. But they were they were 12 and 4 before the break, just 10 and 8 in the regular season after the Falls trade. They were 10th in offense and 5th in defense after the trade. Not necessarily I think because of, you know, trying to implement Falls or anything like that. I I'm sure that was part of it, but also it was a a team that dealt with a ton of injuries, missing a lot of games from Lindsey Whalen and Simone Augustus. Um, but I wanted to kind of reach back a little bit. Eric, as a Chicago Sky fan, you know, obviously this was something that involved your team. You know, how were you kind of feeling, you know, heading into the, the 2015 season as Falls was cored and, and demanded a trade? And kind of can, can you set the table a little bit from your perspective there? Yeah, it was unfortunate. Um, it, it was a big bummer because this is a team that, just the season prior, uh, was coming off a finals run in 2014. Of course, they ran into a absolute machine in the Phoenix Mercury, but um, it was a team, you know, with uh, Fowles and Elena Deladon and a young Courtney Vandersloot, Epiphany Prince, lots of really good players, and, and lots of reason for Sky fans to be optimistic about the future. Uh, seemingly uh, a very balanced team that was that its best days were still ahead of them, you know. But um, I believe we first heard uh, that Fowles wanted out um, on draft night in 2015, uh, when Rebecca Lobo said something like, I, Sylvia Fowles may be demanding a trade or something like that. And it was like, whoa, because, you know, back, back in those days, it wasn't, um, there, there wasn't the amount of, uh, of media, uh, of, uh, investigative journalism and, and, and stuff like that. So it wasn't really, uh, it was kind of out of nowhere. And then of course the Cheyenne Parker was drafted to this guy in 2015 and it dramatically changed, um, the outlook on the 2015 Chicago sky. Uh, of course, it took a little while for this guy to actually find a suitable trade because you know when when a player when a team has a player's negotiating rights you know with the with the core designation but other teams know that the player wants out it's like well it's pretty hard for the team to get equal uh value especially when it's a star player you know whenever a star player is traded you almost never see equal value acquired in return so yeah, uh, the Chicago Sky eventually traded uh, Fowles to Minnesota as part of a three-way trade, also involving involving the Atlanta Dream. Um, they acquired uh, Erica DeSouza and the number twenty tw- uh, number twenty two overall pick in twenty sixteen. Minnesota Lynx uh, out the door: Demiris Dantas, Rashawn DeGray, and the number eleven overall pick in twenty sixteen. Uh, and then Atlanta Dream, of course, traded away Erica DeSouza, their longtime veteran center. They acquired Dantas Gray and the number 11 pick in 2016. Um, that trade, I think at the time, I actually really liked it for Atlanta because I was really high on, on Dantas's potential. And I think that was kind of the, uh, we kind of saw Erica DeSouza kind of um, in the twilight of her career. So I don't think, you know, they would have uh, benefited from keeping her any longer than they, than they already had. But yeah, 
I mean, it stunk, basically, <laughs> uh, to put it lightly, because fouls was, meant so much to this guy's defense in particular. Um, and it really forced the ch- uh, this guy to change how they played. You know, they had a lot of Jessica Breland at the five in 2015. Of course, Elena Deladon, that was her first MVP season. So it allowed them to kind of play faster, play smaller, play a little looser, but th- the ceiling was not nearly as high. And before I kind of go a little further, thank you to Across the Timeline for the uh, detailed transactional information from uh, yesteryear. Um, but Eric, at, at the time, were there like rumors of, of other teams that could be kind of involved or was it sort of a radio silence until the falls trade actually happened were, were their destinations kind of being prominently kind of discussed more than others or was it a, a situation where it seems like it's going to be minnesota and it's just a matter of when what, what did that kind of look like at the time um i do remember minnesota being named as as one of the teams that Fowles would prefer to be traded to simply because they were really really good at the time and you know Fowles had just experienced the heartbreak of a finals loss and you would figure after languishing and on on some pretty bad teams for the majority of her career uh to that point she would want to be dealt to a team that had championship potential i think at the time you know i don't really have anything to back this up but i think there were rumors that fouls didn't really want to play much longer after this um obviously that was proven wrong as she is still playing at a very high level as of 2021 but um, we, we, I think Sky fans as a whole kind of figured, hey, you know, she's been on some, some, some lousy teams. She may not want to play much longer. Things change, of course, but uh, she wants that championship. And where else to win a championship than a team uh, that had won two in the previous three seasons? Yeah, and this was coming off of the Lynx first non-finals appearance, essentially, since Maya Moore was, two, was two, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. Two of the previous four seasons, right? Well, two they won of the four, 20, yeah, because they, yeah. yeah. 2011, 2013, yeah. Lost in 2012 and then um, fell short of, of making it that far in 2014. Um, but yeah, this was a little bit more, more table setting. You know, this was coming off of Maya Moore won the MVP in 2014, the, the year that the Lynx did not make it. And of course, this would this 2015 was a a rematch of the 2012 finals, where Indiana probably you know the last I guess kind of huge upset finals uh, series you know where where you know a heavy favorite kind of fell short in in the finals. Is that fair to say? You think? Very fair to say. Huge upset at the time. Um, Minnesota at the time, you know, we we, we kind of figured that Minnesota. I mean, just looking at their starting lineup, even before Fowles was traded there, you had four all-time greats already in that starting lineup and um dynasty bound clearly and fever of course the league was a lot different back then um particularly no uh, no defensive three seconds rule which i think helped the fever win that series uh or at least definitely factored into it but yeah uh heading forward a few more years we have a rematch between the fever and the lynx um, and it was a really good series, honestly. Well, and this- and before we transition to the fever side of things, one more thing that I we kind of almost forgot to mention here is that the Falls trade was not the the only midseason trade made by Minnesota. Uh, just a week before the Falls deal, they made the move to trade for Renee Montgomery from Seattle. So yeah, Monica um, Wright for Renee, Renee Montgomery. Uh, interesting swap there. You kind of figure they're both kind of in the combo guard build, but it's safe to say that uh, the Lynx won that trade. And you know. Without kind of getting too much into the the meat of the game here, I guess I was a little bit surprised at how little Montgomery really kind of factored into this first postseason run with uh, with Minnesota. You know, she played a decent amount in this game, but overall, you know, she played less than fellow bench guard Anna Cruz, uh, not only for this this specific game, but for the series as well. You know, Cruz is kind of the first... Um, ball handler off the bench and Montgomery was sort of just kind of supplementing some minutes from there uh, but you know did end up playing a, a big one in, in this specific game but was not really their kind of go-to guard option even off the bench here. I think they both played different roles on that team. Cruz thought of as a much better defender and Montgomery obviously the, uh, the three-point sniper and this was for more context at the time I want to say, I don't want to say the beginning of the end because that sounds kind of morbid but this was when Lindsey Whalen's career was kind of on the, it was kind of, you know, towards the end there. Um, and she was dealing with injuries in the season. Still an all-star in 2015. But you could tell by this point in the season that added guard depth and guard versatility off the bench was was really important to Minnesota. Yeah, and Waylon, to this point, uh, and including this game, did not, 
did not factor into the the final minutes of any of these finals games to this point. Played only 12 minutes in this one that we're going to talk about. Um, and the starting five as a whole for this Lynx team coming into this postseason, uh, one the broadcast had said, I think in game one, that they had played only less than 50 minutes together total because of the injuries that Waylon and Augustus dealt with in the regular season. But transitioning to the, the fever perspective, um, they were not the regular season powerhouse uh, that the uh, that the Lynx were. They were the third seed in the East, finishing at 20-14. and 14. Uh, This is their first season under Stephanie White and started a bit slow. They started 3-6 and six on the season, only sixth in net rating on the season, uh, third in offense and fifth in defense. So not you know, really not a, a powerhouse of a regular season team here um, before beating the two-seed Sky in the first round in three games and the one-seed Liberty in three games as well, uh, both, you know, winning two road game threes uh, to advance to the finals here. Do you remember kind of how you were feeling going into that first round series against the Fever? Like, I mean, you obviously you know, Catchings is, is one of the all-time great players, but probably had the best player in the series at that point. Um, and, and a really strong regular season team. Was it a, a huge surprise to you that the Fever ended up winning that one? Not really. Um, at the time, there is still this, of, of, they kind of got over this hump in 2014, actually, in the playoffs. But um, the Fever had the sky's number for the majority of, of, the, of their previous meetings. And the way the Fever played, I think they're really able to exploit this guy's lack of defense that season. Because one thing that White was always preaching was she was always saying, look, we got to get six or seven players in double-figure scoring or else we're going to have trouble winning these games. Um, it was maybe egalitarian isn't the right word, but they did a great job of really moving the basketball around and playing with pace. And when I say pace, I don't necessarily mean just booking it up the floor every single time and, and, and shooting as early in the shot clock as possible. But just making really crisp decisions with the basketball, getting contributions from basically all up and down their their, their lineup. Whereas the Sky were much more of a, a two to three woman show as far as scoring efforts are, are, are concerned. So like in game three of that series, um, Deladon scored, I believe, 40 points. She was unstoppable, but it didn't really matter because the Fever, you know, for every bucket that Deladon got, the Fever would get two from, from two other players. And it was just a matter of, you know, who had more team offense and that ended up being the favor. Yeah. And we definitely saw that balance over the course of this playoff run for the fever, where they had four players uh, in double figures, you know, catchings was kind of their big leading scorer at 16 points a game. But then uh, January, Shanice Johnson, Marissa Coleman were all between 11 and, and 12 and a half points. So after catchings as sort of the primary, you know, alpha of the team, for lack of a better term, there was just a ton of balance on this team. And then uh, Larkins and Zealous also averaged, you know, seven, seven and a half points. So just up and down the roster, you know, there they I think January is pretty comfortably the second best player on this team. But the difference between their best player and their second best player and then their second best player and their fourth best player, um, I think, was you know, much different than that Chicago team where you're kind of looking at a, a much more top-heavy team. For sure, for sure. And a couple Fever players I really wanted to highlight before we talk about the game in particular. Um, the aforementioned Marissa Coleman. You know, I, I, this is her third team in seven seasons at this point, and in my opinion, while she never really reached her full potential coming out of Maryland, um, you know, she was a major contributor to Indiana in 20, 2015. She had a career year, and uh, it was easy to see why just by watching this game. You know, she had... Uh, she was used extensively as a small ball four whenever Catchings was out of the game. That was kind of a staple of this Fever team, you know, playing small, but playing effectively small, rather. Um, doing a little bit of, of, of ball handling, creating her own shot. Maybe not a ton of passing chops, but serviceable. And then Shanice Johnson. She, I was, she had some nice pocket passes in this one, specifically. She did. She did, yeah. And then um, Shanice oh, Johnson. I, but before you move on to Johnson, this was also Coleman's lone all-star appearance, which I, I know you wanted to mention. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, anyway, uh, Shanice Johnson, this is her first season in Indiana, fourth overall. So at this point, she's still a young, developing player. And I really like this player. I, I thought she deserved most improved player for this season, but that's another discussion for another day. Um, career high in true shooting percentage, made 41% of her three-pointers. Just a really solid overall season. And this Fever roster in particular, how they, how they had success by getting a lot of low to mid usage players who, you know, were dependent on for maybe eight to 12 points a game. That was right in Shanice Johnson's wheelhouse. Um, I thought she was going to have a really stellar WNBA career. 
unfortunately knee injuries are the worst and she kind of slowed down as she uh, as the injuries racked up for her but uh, now she's uh, an assistant coach at her alma mater at university in miami by the way but anyway um Really fun young player at this point in her career. I thought she played with good balance. Uh, pretty looking jump shot. Could attack teams with or without the basketball. And she was a big factor in this game as well. Uh, a couple other players who we probably won't really mention over the course of the meat of the game. But this Fever team also featured early career seasons from Natasha Howard. This was Natalie Achanwa's rookie season. Leisha, a young Leisha Clarendon we did see in this game. Uh, as well as Howard. Howard, I think we'll probably talk about the, the most of, of any of those players in this mm-hmm. one. But um, yeah, some some WNBA mainstays that are, you know, either just entering kind of post-prime or or having, you know, some of the best seasons of, of their careers here. So I, I mentioned uh, Catchings uh, a little earlier. You know, she, I think, had maybe a little bit of a, a disappointing series in this one, um, at least from a, a scoring perspective. You know, her points in this series by game, uh, 12, 11, 10 in this game, 3, 10, and then uh, a strong closeout game, 18 points in uh, what was her penultimate season here. This was her age 35 season, but she was 36 at the time of this. You know, she, one of those birthdays that are right after the the you know, basketball reference age cutoff date here. So um, after scoring 20 plus in all three of their first round games against Chicago, uh, Catchings was only able to put up one 20 point game in her remaining eight postseason games. Uh, and like I had mentioned before, only 10 points on 12 shooting possessions in this one. So what one other thing about Catchings is, uh, you know, the last time we kind of checked in with yesteryear for Tamika Catchings in the 29, uh, 2009 finals, you know, she was the pretty much a full-time small forward had since transitioned to playing the power forward uh here in kind of the the mid 2010s um as they really only played with kind of one traditional big but i thought catching's lack of of burst and offensive um i don't want to say moves but but she really just kind of did not she was not the same offensive player i think at this point in her career despite being able to kind of drag this team to the finals definitely definitely without a doubt uh i think people at the time kind of figured that this is going to be either her last season or her second to last season or, or, or close to the end. Um, she was still very, very effective on defense, obviously, but offensively, you could really see, like you said, it was clear that she kind of lost a step at this point. And Catchings was a player who her, her jump shot was rarely, who had rarely really caught up with the rest of her offensive game. And, you know, she was still a, a decent jump shooter in, in some seasons of her career, but um, against a defensive team like Minnesota, and a team like Minnesota, who I'll, that we're going to mention this later, um, could go small to match catchings at the four, the fever playing catchings or Coleman at the four. It was really, she really wasn't creating as many mismatches on offense at the four as she had in previous seasons. Um, 2015, I think it was a, she had a career low in, in true shooting percentage. Um, like I said, still moderately effective offensively, but uh, I think I think her, her decline at this point was a major reason why the fever wanted to play with that really balanced offensive approach because she wasn't really going to be dragging them to a championship, as you said. Yeah, and you mentioned how the shooting waxed wax and waned over the course of her career. You know, plenty of seasons with three-point shooting, you know, on three, three-and-a-half attempts per game where she's in the, the mid-40s, and then, you know, just as many seasons where she's, you know, 31% or below or even below 30%. So uh, a capable shooter, but definitely not one where, you know, she's consistently at kind of like 38% or, or above year in and year out. Right, uh, right. But even defensively, I thought, you know, in at least in this series, uh, maybe it was a little bit different against the Sky and, and some of their other matchups. But I thought her best moments defensively really kind of came as like a help defender. You know, she, I, this was something I was going to kind of say later in the show. But the, the difference between catchings and just like the next best player in terms of like her defensive hands and, and forcing steals and just getting into passing lanes or, or just being able to kind of like poke their hand in without fouling or um, or anything like that. Like the gap between catchings and everybody else is, is just so enormous. Um, but, you know, catchings was not in this series like she was guarding like Rebecca Brunson a bunch of the time and you know not really used to guard Simone Augustus or Maya Moore uh and it's not like you know Brunson is this four with a, a ton of kind of offensive game at least at this point in her career where you re- kind of really need to to worry about her you know catching that I do think was more sort of like help menace at this point in her career than kind of lockdown defender one-on-one 
I agree with that. And I think there's good reason for that. When, when if you put Tamika Catchings on Simone Augustus or Maya Moore, they are going to be running those respective players off screens like crazy. And I think Catchings, you know, you don't want her doing that. You want her to be playing, f- playing that free safety uh, for a little football analogy there. Because then, you know, I, I think like Catchings early in her career, when she was this athletic beast, it was mainly her her athleticism and her hustle. Uh, at this point in her career, it was her smarts and her hustle. You know, she had seen it all at this point, and she really had that acumen. And she was really, um, she, she just had tremendous basketball IQ, uh, especially on the defensive end. You know, if you put her on Rebecca Brunson, you know the links aren't going to be going to Rebecca Brunson, no matter who is on her, really. Um, and at this point, it was before Brunson had really stretched out her jump shot to the three-point line. So even even more of a reason to really put catchings kind of as a, as a roamer out there on the court and basically create plays with her basketball IQ. Uh, which I think she did pretty well here. You know, we, we saw her make a, a fair amount of defensive plays in this one. And this she's coming off a game in this game three where she was limited a little bit in foul trouble in the previous game where she picked up, I think, her fifth foul in the third quarter. So her minutes were a little bit lower in that last one. And then again, picked up an early second fall and was dealing with uh, trouble, fall trouble again, but was able to, you know, play a little bit more so in, in the previous one. And I think one thing, uh, as we kind of get into the game here, that, that again stuck out to me was this was a relatively low scoring game, you know, only 80 to 77, but the offensive ratings, 112 for Minnesota, 110 for Indiana, you know, they scored at a, a reasonable clip here, a very good clip, actually. Uh, it was just a, a very, very slow paced game. It was, and that's that's another reason why I said earlier I wanted to clarify my comments about pace because it's it's not always what. And this is something I I'll surely be bringing up on Twitter throughout the course of the WNB season as well. When coaches refer to pace, it isn't they're not necessarily saying okay we got to get this many possessions per forty minutes. No, no, it's that's that's not always what it is. Um, yeah, I mean I I feel like this game had good pace. But at the same time, it was slow. I don't know if that makes sense, but like there weren't, it had a good flow. Maybe that's a better word for it. There weren't too many stoppages of play or, or whatever. There weren't too many free throws being shot. But yeah, it was it was really slow. It, it came down to which team executed better in the half court for the most of it. So what what really jumped out for you in this re, in this rewatch? Where do you want to start with this one? Um, I would say well, the first thing that jumped out at me would be well, this is Fowl's first finals appearance with the Lynx, and. It was a lot different than it was in 2017 when they uh, returned, or 2016 and 2017 um, when they played against the Sparks. It seemed like they were trying to get her going in the pick and roll early, and it just wasn't working. Um, I'm kind of curious if if that was in part due to playing alongside Rebecca Brunson, like two bigs who are not going to stretch the floor beyond the three-point line. Um, And when you have a intelligent and very, very capable help defender in catchings kind of roaming the floor there, it's easy to see why the Lynx just kind of scrapped those Fowles pick and rolls early. Yeah, Fowles definitely saw several bodies anytime she touched the ball. Um, but I thought it was still a very dominant game from Sylvia Fowles, despite having, you know, what, 11 points on like six shooting possessions or something like that. It, it's not, especially in the second half, you know, it was hard for her to kind of get her offensive touches, but they, they just had no answer for her on no. the glass. Uh, I did think you know, to get late into the game here in, in the very, very kind of closing minutes, a great box out by Larkin under a minute left to keep Falls off the offensive glass on that second to last possession for the Lynx. Uh, and Falls had, you know, three offensive boards in this one, but it just felt like whenever Falls was in the game on the paint, like Indiana was hard pressed to kind of steal a possession on the offensive glass. Like I, I just thought that Falls was um, terrific in what she kind of was able to get going. Um, and, you know, she did win finals MVP for this series, 72% true shooting for the series. And I thought she was awesome defensively in this one as well. You know, as expected. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the two player game, uh, in, in pick and roll and just being able to kind of, you know, guard two players at once, you know, maybe one of the best players that to, to ever do it, probably still the best in the game, in my opinion, doing it. So, um, but yeah, it, it was interesting what you're saying, you know, there was just not a lot of kind of like lanes or, or, you know, space for falls to be able to like work back to basket or anything like that, or, or kind of on the move. It's interesting going back to basketball reference. This 2015 was actually the highest usage rate of Sylvia Fowles career. But if you use this game as a one game sample, you wouldn't have believed it. 
but yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think Larkins, Orlando Larkins in, in her prime was a, she played a lot bigger than what she was. I think six foot one is, is, is being kind of generous almost for her, for her height, but she had, you know, a, a really strong base, uh, at low center of gravity. It was really tough to move her off her spot and she would battle for every single second she was on the floor, but fouls. I mean, some of these times she's just too tall for basically anybody on the fever, just too, just too tall, just too strong. And you did a great job of summarizing it. Even if she wasn't involved offensively, she was still securing that board. And if she wasn't securing the board, she was boxing out. So, I mean, just another cog in this all-timer starting lineup. She had uh, a few nice assists and a few nice potential assists in this one as well. Um, I was kind of, you know, watching this game in the series, I was like thinking to myself, like, was this kind of Sylvia Falls' big passing season but no not really it was kind of no. <laughs> right in line with the rest of her her career but in this series and in this game in particular I thought she had a really nice game as a passer you know maybe one or two turnovers notwithstanding but I think the big thing that stuck out to me in this uh game or at least the first thing that kind of jumped out to me was just if you consider Maya Moore a forward which you know she she is Brian January was the best guard in this game and in this series the Lynx started this one with Simone Augustus guarding her because Waylon just had no chance to stay in front of her earlier in the series. Uh, and again, Waylon played very limited minutes, 12 minutes overall, I think, in this one and, you know, probably five or so in the second half. You know, in the more bench lineups, it, w- it would be Anna Cruz, I think, guarding January primarily. But, you know, she was, I think, in this game specifically and in this series, really the best guard getting deep dribble penetration uh, in the half court, getting two and finishing at the rim. You know, she was hitting open threes. She was hitting pick and roll threes when Renan Montgomery would try and go under her. Um, so January, you know, not uh, a, this was one season after her her only all-star appearance. But, um, you know, anytime we, we watch kind of fever era Brianne January, it, it's just uh, she impresses me with kind of how much passing chops she has, how much she's able to really get into the teeth of the defense with her her quickness. Uh, and this was, of course, one of two seasons that she had leading the league in three point percentage and, you know, playing with a level of offensive confidence, I think, that we just don't see from Brianne January anymore. Confidence is a good word for it. Uh, this was Brianne January in her athletic prime. I don't think she still put that much pressure on the rim, but she was at least a threat to make plays for others, which these days you just you just don't see anymore. Um, but that three-point shooting, man, Brianne January had one of the prettiest, maybe still does, I mean, but she had one of the prettiest spot-up three-point shots I've ever seen. I mean, when she had her feet set, it's like she just couldn't miss. It was a swish every single time. She still has that, still has that really pretty rotation on the basketball, but very, very dangerous um, spot-up three-point shooter. But yeah, playing with confidence, like you said, uh, she had the athletic advantage over basically any Minnesota guard. You mentioned Lindsey Whalen was struggling to stay in front of her. Lindsey Whalen was struggling to stay in front of any fever guard, which is why she only played, what, 12, 13 minutes? Something yeah, like that. We'll, we'll get to that in the second quarter as well with Shanice we'll Johnson. We'll get to that, yeah. But uh, yeah, Brianne January, really good series, honestly. And like, like you said, just night and day compared to what we see from her these days. And before we move on from January, I also thought it was interesting that, you know, late in the game, you know, um, under a minute left, two consecutive possessions, Stephanie White puts the ball in Brian January's hands to, to try to win the game. Um, it didn't necessarily go particularly well, but yeah, I think no. it speaks to kind of who January was at this point in uh, in her role in the fever and, um, you know, kind of the, the confidence that Stephanie White had in her and that the fever had in her as well. Yeah, and, and not undeserved. You know, I, I think when you talk about a team that plays with this balanced approach, one of the pitfalls is, well, when the game's on the line and you need a bucket – who are you going to? Because there has to be some kind of hierarchy there, you know? And I think catchings was almost too obvious of an option. Or maybe it was matchups. You know, maybe it's like, okay, we've got two of the best defenders of all time in, in, in Brunson and Fowles waiting for catchings in her sweet spot in the paint there. Um, we're going to Brianne January because she's been torching Lindsey Whalen the entire game. She, they forced Minnesota to sub Whalen out because of how good she's been. Um, let's keep it going, you know? Um, it, like you said, didn't work out for him, but... Yeah, Brianne January in her prime. I did want to talk about uh, Shanice Johnson here, who had a huge second quarter. So uh, Minnesota was leading after the first quarter here, um, but then Maya Moore ended up 
picking up some foul trouble on, you know, what was probably kind of a garbage play where uh, Leisure Clarendon just kind of ran into <laughs> Maya Moore and, and picked up Moore's. That was third. smart by Leisure, though. It was, yeah, was it was smart. a smart play, it. but, you know, we we don't really stand those plays necessarily. I mean, no, I mean, we, don't, we don't need to see you that. Know, like. uh, but, you know, it was especially for kind of a, a Leisure Clarendon who was earlier on in his career like that's 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 a heady play right that's uh you know absolutely you, you get any advantage you can but that left uh you know simone augustus and lindsey whalen to guard shanice johnson and shanice johnson in that second quarter five for five for 11 points doing most of that work just kind of getting separation on a hobbled lindsey whalen getting open for you know mid-range kind of shorter twos not necessarily the the worst shots but you know, those are shots that, that Shanice Johnson can definitely hit. And uh, she got on fire a little bit, hit a three as well, and, you know, propelled Indiana to go into halftime, leading by four. Another really good-looking jump shot, Shanice Johnson. Um, just and the ability to kind of, like, stop on a dime. I wouldn't say she was an explosive scorer, but she was more of one of those shifty scorers. Did a really good job of keeping her dribble alive. Love that in-and-out dribble move. Um, capable finisher at the rim. But like you said, just really good jump shot versatility. And it was Lindsey Whalen who clearly, clearly couldn't stay in front of her. Um, the fever were, it seemed like whenever Whalen was on Johnson, because they had to put Whalen on somebody, um, they were going to that player. And in the second quarter, it was it was Shanice Johnson. Hit the three, hit the pull-up mid-range two. Um, yeah, really steady play. All right, we got to talk about Maya Moore here. She, yeah, she's pretty decent. Uh, was awesome. You know, she was four of seven in uh, for three in this one. The broadcast was talking about how she had 15 of the team's 23s for the playoffs coming into this game. But coming for the series, she was only one of nine uh, before, you know, exploding for four of seven. But only played 22 minutes after playing 40 in 39 in the previous two games. Uh, again, picked up, she, well, she picked up two in about 20 seconds at the end of the first quarter uh, and then came out with about a minute remaining. And then picks up her third fall about 90 seconds into the third on, on that Claren didn't play and then sits the final eight minutes of the half, but she already has, you know, 10 points at that point. Um, and then finished the game. Yeah. Finishes a game with 24 points in 22 minutes on 18 shooting possessions. So uh, I thought the, the most fun stretch outside of the final shot was at the start of the fourth quarter when both teams decided to go small. It was actually both teams didn't, weren't going small at this point. It was Minnesota was going small with uh, with Moore at the four and Rebecca Brunson at the five. And Indiana was still playing with two bigs, uh, Natasha Howard at the four and their backup center, Lynette Kaiser. So that left a young Natasha Howard to guard Maya Moore. And she puts up uh, five points in about 30 seconds, gets the a tough pull-up too, you know, good defense by Howard, but then, you know, the pull-up three, you know, she pretty much uh, off an inbound, you know, uh, the fever score on the other end after the tough pull-up two by Moore in Natasha Howard's face, and Maya Moore just kind of takes her time bringing it up core and just pulls up a three right in Natasha Howard's face, and then, you know, Indiana calls a timeout and makes a change, but that was, to me, taking advantage of a player who I guess is reputed to have at this point in her career now in 2022, the defensive versatility to kind of guard those perimeter players. But, you know, for Maya Moore, it, w- it was kind of light work getting her out of the game there. Well, Natasha Howard can defend perimeter players, but Maya Moore is no ordinary perimeter player. And especially, like you said, at this point in her career, still very green. I, I think Howard had a, had a, she had a, after a decent uh, rookie season, she kind of had a down year in, in 2015 just with the fouls and the inconsistency, the inconsistent play. Um, and Maya Moore, like you said, took full advantage. It's like after having Tamika Catchings on her for most of the game and being in foul trouble for most of the game, it's like she saw Natasha Howard on her and she said, okay, you know, forget this. I'm making up for lost time here. I'm putting this team on my back because this was a very back and forth game. There was no, this game was never in like blowout territory, right? Um and that's when that's typically when the biggest players step up to make their plays. And I'm not sure either team ever had a 10 point lead in this one. No, yeah, it was it was a really close game, which contributed to you know the uh, the drama in the in the final minutes there. But yeah, Maya Moore, like you said, she was the uh, she was the inevitable one back in those days. It was it wasn't a matter of of, of if she'd get going. It was it was when. And uh, it, all it took was you know just just that just a few minutes of a mismatch, and and Maya Moore really put her team on the back in those minutes. So I thought uh, it was pretty interesting to see both of these teams go small in yeah the Lynx, I think went small for pretty much the entire fourth quarter with uh, with Cruz Montgomery Simone 
Maya Moore and either Brunson or Falls for the majority of that one up until, you know, just about the last couple possessions. We saw some minutes with Tamika Catchings at the five when, you know, right after those two consecutive Maya Moore buckets on Natasha Howard, you know, I think the broadcast thought that Indiana was maybe um, going to get their their starting bigs back in, but no, they rather went with Coleman at the four and Catchings at the five, which I thought was a, a pretty interesting look. And then to close the game, it was it was Cruz, Montgomery, Simone, Moore, and Fowles, and then, you know, the this, this regular starting five for Indiana January uh, Shanice Johnson, Mercer Coleman, Tamika Catchings, and uh, Larkins there. So not, I, I guess this sort of predated when I, I thought, you know, Minnesota would really start going with Maya Moore at the four. But as you mentioned on Twitter the other day, you know, this was a, a great matchup for it because it's not like they, Indiana really played with kind of two dominating bigs in, in the sense that, you know, you think about bigs dominating. No, they didn't. And even if, and even like Indiana's, quote-unquote centers you know you didn't really care that much about like Larkins of course was was a beast on the glass but someone like Lynetta Kaiser who prefers to take mid-range jump shots like yeah I'll, I'll leave Maya Moore on her at the four it's it's whatever um but yeah it's, it was an interesting chess match you're right uh this this small ball stuff that was working for Indiana most of the season Minnesota you know it's it was it was a good counter they, they matched up well against it because you could just put Maya Moore against Tamika Ketchings match small forward playing power forward with small forward playing power forward. Um, and then Brunson at the five, it's like, okay, well, uh, Larkins is already somewhat undersized for the position. And you know, Brunson plays bigger than what she is. So it's basically a wash on the boards there. So yeah, like I said, it was a chess match, but it was who took advantage of who when their matchup was favorable. Going back to the Maya Moore versus Nat- Natasha Howard minutes. That was when Indiana had, Two bench bigs on the floor. Uh, two bench bigs on the floor, and Minnesota had their Maya at the four lineup. I, I believe it was, and advantage Minnesota. You know, but yeah, it was really interesting to see. This was back in the day. I say back in the day like it was a thousand years ago, but in WNBA years, this was before. This was like kind of when small ball was kind of starting to to pick up speed a little bit. I mean, you had the 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 Phoenix Mercury days, um, when when they won their two ch- two championships. But that was like absolutely no defense whatsoever. This was a case of, you know, I think maybe starting to take advantage of those analytical approaches, um, playing small forwards at the four, like Maya Moore and Tamika Catchings, and kind of living with whatever defensive deficiencies you might might bring with that and totally taking advantage of them on offense. I did want to talk a little bit more about Anna Cruz, who played, this was her second year overall in the league. She had played with the Liberty previously and this this 2015 season was her age 28 season and then uh the next year she plays just six games did, did she suffer some kind of injury because uh you know she was a, a really I'm sorry she was a really solid contributor in this one not just in this game but in this series and in this postseason run at all you know a little light on shooting but had the positional size to um, guard, you know, multiple positions, uh, you know, had the flexibility to to play the point guard, to go to the two guard, was kind of their, you know, with Lindsey Whalen Hurt was pretty much their their lead ball handler and lead playmaker uh, distributor, uh, you know, at, as a point guard in this series here. Well, this, for, just for a little bit of context, um, the 2016 Olympics, you know, Anna Cruz played for uh, Spain, I believe it was. So I think she was a late arrival, like she, she came to the WNBA afterwards, um, I might be wrong on that, but that might be the reason why she, she didn't play as many games in the regular season as she did previously. Um, yeah, in 2015, like I said before, she was she played a key role for this Lynx team and that she was the bench guard who they just throw on whichever on, on the best perimeter score or best perimeter guard, uh, guard score, I should say, because it, it was at the point where Lindsay Whalen's career when she like was no longer, quote unquote, hideable. You, you couldn't really hide her on anybody, at least against this, this fever team. But um, yeah, I mean, she, she played a key role in you know, attacking the basket with mixed results. Um, but like you said, she could play either guard position. Not a player who had any problem with uh, doing the dirty work in, in, in defending, but could also play with the basketball as well and, and make play with the ball as well. So I guess the best way to talk about the end of the game here is, again, just this is something we've talked about before, but highlighting how great those huddle peak-ins are where you are just able to hear everything each coach is saying, you know, for... Um, for Stephanie White, you could hear 
exactly the place she's drawing up. She's telling Brian January, um, you know, as they're drawing up their ATOs, you know, you're not going to get open until 10 seconds or don't go until eight, like stay, stay where you are until eight seconds. Uh, really such great, like in-depth insight into kind of what Stephanie White was drawing up and the, uh, the directions that she was kind of relaying to her team at the end of the game here. Uh, I did mention that both of those, um, that both of their kind of tie game, because the, the game at this point is tied at just 70 at 77 apiece after Renee Montgomery hit a three with just over a minute left. And both teams went on a pretty big scoring drought for, you know, two or three possess- possessions each. I thought it was interesting that, uh, I guess not surprising that Minnesota in the second of those, um, ATOs for Indiana with Indiana having the ball, they went with Rebecca Brunson as a defensive substitution for Renee Montgomery. Um, and Minnesota had two timeouts, but then when they got the stop and got the ball back with, you know, 1.7 seconds or whatever it was left Brunson in the game, it was an offense only possession and you're still playing Rebecca Brunson for, uh, over Renee Montgomery with 1.7 seconds left. Uh, I thought that was one of many confusing things, uh, for the, the final play there. Yeah, that was interesting. But going back to one thing you mentioned that I that I wanted to um, emphasize, when you're talking about listening to the coaches drop the plays and talking about the uh, talking about the seconds on the on the clock in particular, that was enormous at this stage of the game because I believe Fever had um, the ball with what 25, 26 seconds remaining or something like that. So there, yeah, there, there I think was there like, was like one point eight difference. Uh, if yeah, I remember so correctly. like absolutely crucial. Like each second, each half second, absolutely crucial. Um, and of course, the final result, we could see why. But I mean, it's not even like Indiana messed up that that, that, that clock management, you know? This was really good clock management by the Fever. Um, they went at the perfect time, unfortunately did not score. But uh, yeah, great stuff hearing that in the uh, in the timeout huddle. Really wish they'd bring that stuff back. Yeah, and this was just a, uh, this was just a couple years ago. I'm surprised that they have gone away from that. Uh, I, I found it extremely entertaining and insightful. Other, I guess, notable things about this final Maya Moore shot. I thought it was interesting that, you know, Waylon, Lindsay Whalen, who had not played since the, you know, the maybe six or five or six minute mark of the third quarter was brought back in to be the inbounder, which I think makes sense with that little time left because she doesn't really have to move. There's almost no time left for her to kind of get the ball back. Um, You know, Lindsay Whalen not known really as a three point shooter. So kind of that those shooting limitations um, and, you know, I think Anna, Anna Cruz did a perfectly good job as, as point guard, but Lindsay Whalen is a player who you probably trust a little bit more kind of making, Definitely. you know, the, the winning pass there. Um, and then, you know, not, not to be too much of a, a revisionist history here, but I don't really get going with Coleman on Maya Moore on this last possession. Like why, why does Tamika Catchings need to guard Rebecca Brunson on this final play? Uh, I know we talked about catching is not really being the lockdown defender of yesteryear like I get maybe you know Breon January was kind of getting ball racked a little bit at times by Maya Moore and Simone Augustus uh, because of the height differential but I think either one of those options just make more sense than Coleman who you know I I didn't really ever think was having all that good of a defensive game in this one I don't maybe it was to take away the lob I unfortunately you can only have one Tamika catchings on the floor at, at, at any one time um but I agree with you. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. I didn't really kind of think about it from a, a perspective of getting it to download I mean, the Sylvia many, Falls. Yeah. What was it? One point seven seconds remaining, or something like that. So you 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 figure like Minnesota's best chance at, at winning the game would be on a quick two at the rim. So you, you got to make sure you take that away. And if if someone hits a long outside shot, then they hit a hit a long long outside shot, and they did. Maya Moore hits a um really pretty. I mean, it was just iconic, right? You know, shot fake. One dribble to the right, pull up when she got uh, Coleman going flying past her and, and swishes it. So, uh, yeah, that was interesting. One thing I wanted to say, though, about Waylon, this might be, um, I don't know how deep analysis this is, but uh, when you have a, like a championship core like this and you have one of the greatest point guards of all time on your bench, like you said, I would trust Lindsey Whalen to execute the play. Not just not just making a, a good inbounds pass, but just just execute the play. They've they've been together for at this point, I want to say four or five seasons. Um, they're familiar with each other. They've won championships with each other. You need to execute this play. 
You know, I mean, there, there, it's do or die. Anna Cruz was having a good, good game. Waylon, not so much. But like I said, it was. I don't, I don't want to pick on her too much because it was mostly just players who are more athletic than her at this point in her career. And Waylon was dealing with an Achilles injury at this point. Yes. You know, even yes. for the limited athletic version of, of Lindsay Waylon at this point, she was not healthy, you know? You could tell. You could tell, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you got to execute on that play. And who better to execute than your than your Hall of Fame point guard? So yeah, it was, like like I said, interesting chess match, particularly on this final possession. Um, decent defense, just, uh, just an all-time shot by Maya. I thought this was also a great Ruko and Lobo game. You know, I, I, a, a pair that uh, is divisive, I think, in the WNBA community. But uh, I thought they were great, both in kind of setting the stage big picture um, and, you know, laying out sort of the, the lineup stuff with each team kind of going small and, uh, you know, the minutes distributions and stuff like that. I like Ryan Ruko. I think, I think he's, he's good. I think he's good, too. One other thing, you know, just two two end of quarter chances. I want to say it was the second quarter and third quarter uh, chances for a heave where the player just doesn't throw it up. It's the WNBA Finals. Just throw the ball at the rim. The worst thing that can happen is it doesn't go in. Um, but I, I thought, you know, the one where it was Simone Augustus, I want to say maybe at the end of the second quarter, you know, she's she's behind the free throw line at the opposite end of the quarter. So I, I understand that. But then to end the third quarter where Anna Cruz is, you know, maybe uh, two or three steps behind the half court line, you know, that's that's worthy of a heave, I think. And, you know, there was no one really around her. I think she, she could have thrown that one up. But uh, alas, <laughs> it worked out OK, I guess. Did you have anything else on this one? Um, one thing I, I kind of forgot to mention this when I was talking about Waylon and, and, and chemistry and all that. Um this game was, I think, a really uh, good Rebecca Brunson game, at least showcasing how valuable she was to the Lynx later in her career. With the screening, I really thought she did a great off-ball job screening um, for Simone Augustus. You could tell those two had really great chemistry together. Um, Augustus loved, loved, loved that mid-range game, one of the best to ever do it in the mid-range. Just like maneuvering around those Brunson screens, um, not just, you know, when, when, they, when she'd maybe come off a pin down, but then... You know, or, or like fake a pin down, but then come uh, come across back to the free throw line. There'd be nobody there. Just little things like that. Little things like that that make to just make a championship team go. I mean, when you look back at this Lynx dynasty, yes, it was an all time starting lineup. Yes, there were some Hall of Fame players there, but you got to be able to make the the little things work as well. You got to be able to do the dirty work as well. And Brunson was really that that glue that 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 made it all work. So. It was a real treat to see. I would see the the five of them, really, um, the five all-time players in this Lynx starting lineup weren't all in their prime at this point in their career anymore. But, I mean, they still made it work. Um, Cheryl Reeve, of course, amazing coach as well. So it was really cool to see the uh, Hall of Fame coach and Hall of Fame point guard connection. One thing I always enjoyed watching, this, that Lynx dynasty. But, yeah, just a real treat to watch. This was uh, a a really really fun game to go back and revisit sorry to uh, any fever fans that we have listening i might even skip this one i wouldn't uh wouldn't blame you if you did i know one in particular may not be happy but that's all right yeah any 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 closing remarks before we uh get going here i mean just uh in case anybody didn't know uh the other piece of context um this was of course a uh what do they call it like it, it was tied at one and then uh the links of course wanted in the final seconds of that maya moore shot um, Blinks obviously ended up winning the series and uh, winning their third championship of four in their in their dynasty. So, well played in Minnesota. Really cool to look back on this on this time period. Like I said, it wasn't. I don't mean to make it sound like it was uh, a billion years ago, but as our friend Curtis Zimmerman at Across the Timeline always says, it, it's important to tell the stories. It's important to, especially for a growing league, it's important to uh, remember the history and, and tell the stories and. It's really cool having these games still available to watch on video because while it may not have been that long ago, it's still a lot has changed since then. You know, most of the players in this Minnesota, I keep calling it an all-time lineup, have retired. Now they've moved on to different things. And it's just, uh, it's nice to be able to watch. It's nice to have that stuff preserved for you, you know? Yeah, that's, um, and this is kind of right smack dab in in the middle before uh, the, the, the second of two three consecutive finals runs that um that the links have uh you know they lose to la the following year and then beat la the the year after that and what was just uh when you look at kind of the the net ratings of that 2017 
WNBA season, like the links were just completely insane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was, this was fun. I always love to kind of do these, you know, at, they're not maybe our most listened to shows, but it's, uh, like you said, it's important to tell the stories. I think, um, you know, for, for me, you know, the, the further back we go, uh, when the video is good enough, at least, you know, it's nice to kind of learn about that stuff. So, um, before we go, do you want to, uh, I know you've been working on some non-podcast things. Do you want to plug any of that? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for asking. Um, so I recently sat down and spoke with Rebecca Harris. She is a, uh, veteran professional basketball player. She's been, uh, playing for quite some time now overseas and in, uh, local professional leagues here in America, uh, such as the GWBA. She's played in, I believe, Poland, Turkey, just has a, has a wealth of overseas experience. I don't usually do a lot of interviews, but Rebecca is, is I'm, I'm glad I talked with her. It was, um, she was an absolute goldmine of information and advice and stories and ideas, just everything uh, regarding the, the growth of women's basketball as a whole, not just in the WNBA, not just in college basketball, but, but globally, you know, um, got a lot of cool insight regarding uh, agents um, you know, I think that's kind of a, I hadn't really thought about it before, but what role do agents play in finding American players overseas contracts? And then what role do players play in finding themselves a good agent? Uh, that's something I think maybe hasn't really been considered very often. So yeah, I did an interview with Rebecca Harris. I'm really pleased with how it turned out. It's a little long, but I think it's worth a read. Uh, you can find it at swishappeal.com. And uh, let me know what you think, because I think there's for as much WNBA history and women's college basketball history that is still being uh, unearthed, I want to say, or there's an effort to keep it alive, if you will, there is 10 times more overseas women's basketball history to be discussed and many more conversations to be had. Because, you know, like, these, there are so many leagues overseas that, like, in countries, like, you, you don't even know these leagues you're playing. And what happens to all these collegiate players, like when they're done playing, a lot of them go overseas. And one of the points that Rebecca raised was that if these players are your favorite players in high school and in college, there's no reason why they can't still be your favorite players when they're playing in Europe or Asia somewhere, you know? So yeah, I highly encourage you to check it out. Give her a follow on Twitter. Um, she also wrote a book recently called How Bad Do You Want It? It's mainly focused on helping people achieve their goals because her goal was always to be a professional basketball player in whichever capacity. So while she, um, the point is, you know, she's never in the WNBA, but she's still a professional basketball player. Women's professional basketball extends past the WNBA. And those are stories that I enjoy telling and that I enjoy putting out there. And Rebecca's story is, it's a good one. So check it out at Swish Appeal. Let me know what you think. Um, and if by chance you are a professional basketball player listening to this podcast, um, one, I'm sorry. And two, yeah, hit me don't, up. don't do that. Yeah, no, don't, please don't listen to our podcast. If you listen this far, I don't know why you're doing that to yourself. <laughs> but um, I would love to do more interviews regarding overseas basketball play because it is just, there are so many stories there that are, um, like I said, waiting to be unearthed and um, will help grow the game even further if they're out there. So thanks in advance. And thank you all for listening to the show. Uh, you can support us by following, rating, and reviewing on Apple, Spotify, and Google. You can follow the show on Twitter at DoubleDownWNBA. You can follow Eric at Nemchak E or myself at Trinkwald. And um, we will have some free agents news sooner or later, uh, I'm sure. Uh, in the meantime, we'll, we'll come up with something, I'm sure. But uh, talk to you next time. All right. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay warm. All that good stuff. See you next time, everybody.